Psychology in Seattle. Hey, deserving listeners. Today I want to talk about the psychology of big little lies. Today's episode is mainly going to be about the second season because that just concluded. But before we get into that, let me introduce the podcast. This is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I am your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor at Antioch University, Seattle. So there's a lot of things to comment regarding psychology and psychotherapy. And if you want to hear my full, very angry review about the psychotherapy depiction in Big Little Lies Season 2, listen to that episode because I did a whole episode just on how horrible the therapy was in season two of Big Little Lies, but I'm um, just getting into other things about the show, which I think are notable, are <clears throat> um, guilt is a major theme in season two, in that the the guilt of, and this is going to have spoilers because this show has a fair amount of twists in a sense, and so I would watch, and if you haven't seen Big Little, Big Little Lies, I encourage you to watch it, one, because it's it, – I think it's a great show, and two, it's not very long. I think both seasons together, it's something like 14 hours or something. So um, it's it moves pretty quick, and uh, I think it's pretty great. Anyway, so guilt plagues the five women because they um, witnessed a well, – one could say an accidental murder and then lied about it to the police – uh, the Zoe Kravitz character and Nicole Kidman's character, and eventually all of them um, were experiencing a lot of guilt throughout this season. And at the climax, the very end, the last scene of season two, you see the five women going into the police station, presumably to confess um, after really struggling with their guilt throughout the season. And I thought that that really wrapped it up well. It's called Big Little Lies, and so the... Uh, theme is lying and then this theme is the consequences of of lying and the the guilt of lying lying and doing things that are antisocial are quite uh, take take quite a toll on the human experience now for some people rare individuals psychopaths they don't have that mechanism in general but for the 99% rest of us we tend to feel quite a bit of guilt about lying and it's shown a lot in our behavior and in studies. So uh, we can see in the, the writers I thought, or the writer wrote pretty well uh, this notion of guilt and how each character kind of comes along. Like the Nicole Kidman's character telling the truth about the abuse that she went through. It's a big theme in this season about how no one knew the extent of the abuse that she went through the Zoe Kravitz character this season, telling the truth to her mom and to her husband, you know, coming clean, not lying anymore. The Laura Dern character telling the truth about her marriage and her life in general, the Shailene character telling the truth about her rape and her need for intimacy. And the Reese Witherspoon character telling the truth about her infidelity and how telling the truth and, being truthful about her love, get well, telling the truth helped her c- to connect and realize how much she was in love with the Adam Scott character. And that t- 
telling the truth and being honest and authentic was the beginning of her starting a brand new life. You get a sense that for the very first time, she might actually be living an authentic, happy life from this point forward. So that was, that was pretty satisfying. All right, let's talk about the mother who is played by Meryl Streep beautifully and perfectly and wonderfully by Meryl Streep. So let's talk about that character. I think this is an excellent depiction of what I might call passive aggressive personality disorder. It's something that is no longer included in the DSM, but it was in the past. And it's kind of a complicated personality disorder. And if you want to know more about it, listen to my deep dive on it. You have to be a patron of the podcast before you get access to the episode, but it's in the archive. And if you become a patron, you can't find it, email me and I'll help you find it. But it's a very interesting personality disorder that I think is mostly depicted in this. I don't know if the writers intended it this way, but probably not in all likelihood. But the uh, the Meryl Streep character is kind of a good approximation, maybe someone, say, 40% on the spectrum. So let's get into her character. So I think it's, you know, again, this is a fictional character, but I, if I met her in real life, I would speculate that she had suffered from childhood mistreatment. When she was on the stand being questioned by Nicole Kidman, you saw that she had a physical reaction, a trauma reaction, not only to the car accident that happened when she was um, younger and in which her one of her sons had died, but also probably because of mistreatment she went through early in life. And the defenses that she exhibited with passive aggressiveness is indicative of a lot of emotional abuse growing up. So again, fish, fictional character, but that's what I would um, speculate. Basically, when you're being emotionally abused, you have a number of different choices before you that you decide on subconsciously that can help you cope with it. And one of the ways that you can cope with emotional abuse, so emotional abuse is like put downs and making you feel incompetent, lots of criticism, uh, making you feel like you can't do anything right, making you feel like you're not lovable, you're not good enough, you're worthless, these kinds of messages. Um, you know, Either some of those messages or all those messages. And as a young person from zero to seven years old, you need to develop subconsciously a way of coping with that. And one of the uh, common coping styles that people will land on is what we call passive aggressive personality, which is the um, idea that other people are all good and the self is all bad. So this might sound like not a very great coping skill, but it actually can work given the level of difficulty that people are going through. So if I'm experiencing a bunch of attacks and I don't, and I feel bad and I'm looking at other people and I'm thinking, wow, they're treating me badly and I feel bad, but, and, but if we're both bad, then I'm really in a bad spot because I can't depend on myself and I can't depend on other people. So I have to figure out some mental scheme, some narrative about the situation that will help me cope. And one of the ways available is to say, well, they must be all good and I must be all bad. And everything they say must actually be true. And I must actually be worthless because 
if I'm worthless, then I need a strong, all good person to take care of me. Again, it's not a wonderful coping uh, mechanism to develop, but it actually does make it better than believing both other people are bad and the self is bad. And the other one is in the reverse, whereas I'm all good and the others are bad and that's narcissism, but that's for another time. So that's the working model there in, in attachment theory. And it's a simplistic way of looking at it. It's not, it doesn't really actually pan out entirely that way because there's kind of layers to it in the personality. That's kind of the surface layer. And one of the ways, the, one of the consequences of that of that working model that other people are all good and I'm all bad, particularly one's parents is that you end up really having a lot of anger and a lot of resentment toward the people that are harming you that, that goes underground because you feel like you can't really express it for a lot of different reasons. You're you're either going to get more emotional abuse from other people or your mental scheme is such that, well, they're all good. So they can't possibly do bad things. But there's a part of you as a child that knows they're doing a lot of bad things and you're very, very upset at them. So because you're so angry, but you don't feel safe enough to express it, you need to suppress the anger and have it come out in other ways. And this is why it's called passive aggressive, because the person is passively hostile. They're secretly hostile in ways that allows them to express their hostility and resentment and justifiable anger, but in a way that's safer than actually doing it directly. So the person actually believes they can't actually communicate directly. And if they do, they're going to get harmed more, they're going to get beat, or they're going to get emotionally abused more, or it's just not going to be hurt. So they, they do it passively. Now, the Meryl Streep character isn't a quintessential example of this, but clearly something was going on with her personality. And I think this is the best conceptualization. So we'll just kind of go with it for right now. You could make other arguments for other personality types, but um, that's what I'm going to do right here. So as I said, as a young woman, she has her two boys in the car and she gets in a car accident and it's, it's unclear exactly why it might've been because Perry was distracting to the Meryl Streep character, but um, either way, it's, it seems that uh, the mother, Meryl Streep, got out of the car, saw that one of her sons was injured, and yelled at her other son and blamed him for the car accident, blamed him for causing the car accident, blamed him for his brother's death. And so this is, uh, you know, she said, look what you made me do. So this is an example of passive aggressiveness. So when you're passive aggressive, you... People use this term wrong almost all the time, by the way. I just want to say that. any Anytime anyone uses passive-aggressive, often what they're meaning is just aggressive or what they're meaning is like um, like uh, annoyingly aggressive. Like saying something like, um, look, uh, with all due respect, you drive like a crazy person. That's not passive aggressive. That's that's hostility. It's pretty clear that the person is being hostile. It's just in this style of communicating that's softened in a insincere way. That's not passive aggressive. Passive aggressive is when often the target of the aggression doesn't even know that they're being treated in a hostile way. And with p- passive aggressive personality, you almost never detect the hostility until you really get to know them. Um, so uh, p- 
pass. So I sometimes I use the term passive hostility because I want to get away from the the bastardization of the term. But anyway, so so uh, when the passively hostile person is pushed to the edge, then they will just be full on hostile. And that's what she did with her son after the car accident. But anyway, so getting to season two, when we see Meryl Streep enter the story, we see that at first she's super nice and super helpful and super kind. And she comes across as as weak and vulnerable in the beginning of the season, but in a way that's beautifully written, directed, and acted in such a way where it seems almost eerie. The, the niceness, like if you, if you just met the Meryl Streep character at the beginning of the season, you'd be like, wow, what a nice woman. She's, she's talkative. She looks you in the eye. She, she, she's interested. She's helpful. What a nice old lady. But you'd probably get this kind of eerie feeling about it. And that's a real key with passive hostility is that the niceness is a defense. So, so that's another part of the passive aggressive personality development. When the person is young, they learn that in order to cope daily with the abuse they're experiencing, they have to be they have to be super nice because the person who's abusing them often will react better when the child is being really really nice. And so this niceness is a put on, it's a fake niceness that they did to get the abuse to go away. And it probably worked on for whatever reason on their parent. But to other people, it comes across as, as slightly insincere. <clears throat> but we're not really used to insincere, super nice people. And so it's not something that, uh, culturally speaking, we're adept at really detecting very quickly, at least in my experience. And so people like this will usually be labeled as extremely nice. And they'll be labeled as almost like, too nice. Like that person is so helpful. That person is so nice. That person is so self-deprecating. That person is so, um, so pleasing and just always showers me with compliments. And it's just a, it's a barrage. And this is, this is the coping because they realize that if they, you know, one way to manage that person uh, that was abusing them was just to shower them with compliments. You're the best parent you can do no wrong. Oh, you're you're so funny. You're so smart. Just barrage. And that whenever they're anxious, which they often are anxious in social relationships in the future, they will start off with just showering with lots of compliments and being very helpful and just falling over backward to, to help the other person. Now, nice people aren't necessarily passive aggressive, but um, I hope you get my point. So it can seem actually eerie at first. And I think that was depicted for the most part pretty well. Again, I don't think the writers were actually going for this personality disorder. I think they were just trying to write an interesting story. But um, anyway, so, but I thought that was, that was an interesting uh, parallel with the way that I've experienced passive aggression in my practice. Um, then you see her start to become suspicious. And if we look at the story, it she's actually suspicious for the right reasons uh, because the women are lying. She's suspicious that they're lying, and she's right. And although when we're watching the show, we're rooting for the five women against the, the Meryl Streep character, but in reality, the Meryl Streep, char- Meryl Streep character was right. She she was detecting that these women were covering up a 
a manslaughter case, essentially. And so um, if looked at from other side, the Meryl Streep character was right. But anyway, we also see that the, you know, passive-ish hostility starts to come out. We see that the Meryl Streep character starts to become quite hostile, but in a very, with a, you know, served on a platter, right? <laughs> a, a very, a crap sandwich served on a silver platter to, to these other people. If, if someone were watching the conversation, they'd be like, oh, look, two women having a conversation. That's very cordial. But the content was very, very hostile from the Meryl Streep character, which is, is this deep rage that's been suppressed since day one because their parents or whoever was abusing them didn't allow them to express their anger. And so they have just tons and tons of rage on the inside. And you got that sense in the Meryl Streep character that she was very angry. And the way that she, uh, ex- she could never just express it. She had to express it in this other way. Interestingly, at the dinner table, when she screams in grief, that, that was sort of maybe part of that anger coming out. And she was talking about that. She's like, aren't you angry? She, so anyway. Uh, also invasive and subtly dominant. So that's another thing is that passive aggressive people can be subtly dominant in that they, if again, if someone were to describe them, you'd never could describe them as dominant. But if you actually analyze the social situations that that they construct or that um, is constructed around them, is they often become quite dominant, but in a very passive way. They'll they'll seem very nice. They'll seem very um, uh, cordial and complimentary to other people. But in essence, they're very dominant in social situations. The focus is often on them. The um, their anxiety is what uh, rules the room. Their emotional energy kind of rules the room. Again, not because they're uh, evil or there's something wrong with them, but because they were so traumatized growing up. This is this is the de- personality that developed to cope with that, and and they just retain that into adulthood, and you know they're not aware of it. So you know that's what's happening. and they're highly anxious too. They're not. They're extremely anxious, and I don't know if that was depicted all that well with the Meryl Streep character, but but it was kind of. So um, the other aspect that is somewhat common to people with passive hostility is that, or the personality disorder, is that they can have quite grandiose narratives of other people. And we saw this in Meryl Streep's grandiose narrative of her son who had died. It Again, this is the all good others and all bad self. She needs to believe that other people are all good. Otherwise, she's all bad. So there's a lot of different... So denial is a big part of any personality disorder, but it's a big part of passive aggression in that in order to cope with the deep, deep shame. So experiencing all of that abuse, you experience deep, deep shame and deep, deep worthlessness to the point of like... A, a deep, dark abyss. You know, it's one thing to feel ashamed and be like, oh, you know, I really screwed up. It's another thing to have this this abyss of shame and worthlessness that knows no bounds. And to feel a little bit of it is to fall into the pit and feel like you can never come out. It, if you have that, and I say those words, you know what I'm talking about. If you've never had that before and you don't really know what I'm talking about, then bless your lucky stars that you don't actually have that as a result of the abuse that you went through. So um, she 
because she, my conceptualization of this fictional character, had this deep, deep shame and this deep abyss, she needed to hold, she needed some kind of foundation, something to hold on to. And the thing that she could really hold on to was that other people were perfect. And one of the things that she would do is she said, well, Perry is perfect. My son is perfect. She probably had other people before Perry or, but that she could do that with, but with Perry, she, he's perfect. But it's a very shaky perfection in that because she's so self-consumed with her own coping and her own anxiety, she can't really make other people feel that great. But but she needs to believe that they're great anyway. So if she acknowledges or if she believes that her her all-good other is perhaps not all-good, then everything falls apart for her and she falls into the to the abyss because she doesn't have a self to fall back on. She doesn't have worth in herself to fall back on. She she needs to believe that something else that's connected to her, perhaps something that she created like her son is all perfect and all good. For parents who were raised well enough when they're threatened with ideas about their kid not being perfect, you know, they have a day where they're like, oh, my kid, look what they just did. You know, I love my kid, but my kid just did this one thing. It, it's it's a shot to the heart, if I might quote John Bon Jovi, in that you are, uh, it suddenly is like, well, wait, is that, did I make a mistake with my parenting? And that's a good, you know, it's a natural question that every parent would have. And then you immediately think, is there something wrong with me? Am, you know, am I a terrible person? And if you were raised well enough, then you can go, well, no, I, I know I'm a good person and I've done a good job parenting. And yeah, I, I think, I'm, but I'm not a perfect parent and I've made mistakes. And my kid has been damaged on some level by some of those mistakes. But I think my kid's doing pretty good. And so it's a nuanced view. It's mostly good. I'm mostly good. My kid's mostly good. But I have some flaws and my kid has some flaws. To be able to hold on to that ambiguity, that ambivalence around perfection or something or goodness, you need to have a good amount of self-esteem and a good sense of who you are. And if you weren't allowed that growing up, like what I'm guessing the Meryl Streep character was not allowed, then you have to have something to hold on to. She needed to believe that Perry was perfect. Uh, Plus, it's just kind of natural for parents uh, to be very grandiose about their kids. I think it's a... Uh, evolutionary phenomenon. We are preferential to our family members and friends and probably particularly our kids. So the last part about the Meryl Streep character that is indicative of passive hostility personality is that even after it was pretty clear that she was losing the case and that, or after she did lose the case, she still remained in the drama for people who don't have this personality disorder, when things start to go wrong, they problem solve and they think, well, I guess I made a mistake there. Maybe I shouldn't hang out with that part of the family anymore. I'll just cut my ties with them. I'll move on to something else and I'll try to start over. Or I'll go and apologize and say, you know, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, let's agree to disagree or whatever. Some kind of functional way of of moving on to the next phase. But for the Meryl Streep character, she's sort of self-destructed. And this is very common for people with passive hostility. Because again, the in the courtroom, the Meryl Streep's character's coping me- mechanism was completely stripped away because she was faced with looking directly into the 
face of the fact that her son was not perfect. In fact, her, her son was a monster. So that, that took that, that pulled that rug out from underneath her. And now she's looking around, everyone hates her. Now she's looking around like, maybe I won't even be able to see my grandkids very often. Well, now what do I have? What, I have nothing. I can't go back to myself because I'm worthless. So there's a desperation there. And she runs over to Nicole Kidman's house. And at the door, there's a scene between Meryl Streep's character and Nicole Kidman's character. And they're, they're you know, Meryl Streep's character is like, you know, this is, this is not fair. The, you know, please change your mind about, about me and da, da, da. You know, it, it's a, it's a desperation. You could see in the Meryl Streep character that she wasn't just trying to convince the Nicole Kidman character just because she wanted her daughter-in-law to have a different opinion. She needed Nicole Kidman's character to have a different opinion because again, she can't rely on herself. She has to, she has to have other people believe in her. And uh, that was all falling apart for her, from her, and so that's why she ran to the house and was and was pleading. It was a it was an act of desperation to avoid the abyss. So I hope that that you know little discussion provides some knowledge of an oft forgotten personality that is really quite tragic and um, can create a, a wake of issues and um, problems around them. If, if you've had someone like this in your life, you know the, the wake of difficulty and problems that they create in their lives. Again, completely not their fault because they're just enacting a defense that they developed early in life that they needed to develop. And what it says is that if more people are aware of this, then they could get help for it and they can recover. Uh, I've treated passive aggressive people before and it takes a long time. It's similar to borderline or narcissism or avoidant or paranoid histrionic. It takes a long time, but they absolutely can be treated through interpersonal therapy. So, all right, let's go on to the next thing here. So the next thing I want to talk about here is Nicole Kidman's PTSD. So Nicole Kidman exhibited at least, and we don't necessarily know if it's PTSD, but definitely trauma after trauma effects, such as nightmares, uh, being disengaged and sort of confused and cut off, maybe a little depression, confusion is also another element of, of trauma. And this is all in one th- experience of the grief, the loss even though she was ready to leave her husband, it's still a, a massive loss to to not have him in her life anymore. It's just a, it's a big change. Also, the traumaticness of the death, the the blood and the horribleness, what would is a shock to the system. So when we go through that kind of complicated grief or traumatic grief or or trauma, and the traumas of all the abuse she went through. Then afterwards, you're going to, you know, she had nightmares, she's disengaged. So one of the things that the nervous system does is that it says life and people are too much. So I'm going to turn off my attention and myself a little bit in response to other people because other people can can be very shocking to my system. So I'm just going to, I'm just going to kind of distance myself from, from the world. And that means uh, cut off and that means a lack of engagement Another thing that the brain might start to do is it just needs, it's dealing with too much stuff. It can become quite confused. And so 
she exhibited that a little bit in season two. The guilt of it, she was in distress. Drug use also, we saw her uh, uh, maybe taking, it was implied that maybe she took a fair amount of substances like um, opioids and uh, she took Ambien and crashed the car. Um, But um, anyway, it's not uncommon for people when they're struggling with trauma to turn to self-medication, to turn to substances because they work. Uh, That's one of the reasons why opioids are so powerful in many people's lives is because they have been suffering their whole life from the effects of trauma, whether it's PTSD or some other after trauma effect. And they're in this constant state of distress and it's been, it's normalized for them. If you ask them, are you in distress? They say no, because they're just so used to the stress. They're just so used to, to the, you know, the fight or flight uh, triggers happening all the time. You give that person an opioid and boom, it's all gone or for the most part. And, or a benzodiazepine or something. And they're like, whoa, for the first time, I'm relaxed. I feel normal. And so I think they depicted that a little bit in Nicole Kidman's case. And also sexually, um, so they depicted in season one and two how Nicole Kidman's character would have a lot of one-night stands. So there's a lot of ways of looking at this. One way is that She just likes to have one-night stands, and there's nothing wrong with that. We don't want to sexually shame people. Um, It was unclear if it was even something that she didn't want to do. Um, You know, if it was a man, would we be looking at it the same way? Um, So there's just nothing wrong with that behavior in and of itself. Having said that, it's also possible that she was doing it to distract herself from her pain. Or another thing that people do is they beat themselves up through various different self-destructive acts like sexual acting out. It's unclear. They they didn't really make that. And I, I like that about Big Little Lies is they didn't really hammer home exactly what the writers were trying to say, if the writers were trying to say anything in that. They just sort of showed us it as it's sort of left up to you to decide was that just her uh, preference to have random sex with people, which is nothing wrong with that. Um, some would argue that she was exposing her kids to chaos that they shouldn't experience. And I might agree with that, but for the most part, she kept it under wraps and she, you know, she said, I, I would have sex in the bathroom at the restaurant or something. And of course it goes against social mores but we all know that sexual, sex, sexual cultural mores in our uh, culture are not always the sanest things. So that was another element potentially of, of trauma for her. Okay, it's going to another psychological concept. This is called systems theory. Listen to my deep dives on systems theory if you want the full kind of understanding of it. But basically, the one of the uh, observations of systems and of of human systems is that we develop roles in a system and we learn to depend on those roles. So if you, for example, work in an office where there is a staff meeting every once in a while, well, after a certain amount of time with the same people, you're going to see the same sorts of roles. You're going to see the same sorts of people exhibit the same roles. So, you know, 
John is the funny one, and Jane is the organized one, and Stephanie is the quiet one, and Beth is the truth sayer and the one who gets angry. And it, 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 we tend to look at that like, well, Beth is, she's just an angry person. But you take Beth and you put her in another context, another workspace with different uh, systemic roles that have been distributed. And she might be the nice one. She might be the jokester. It, it really depends. So the idea is, is that a, a human system of people, there's a job that needs to get done and different elements will emerge, different people will do certain social jobs. And so that's a very simplistic way of looking at it. But anyway, so we see that in season two in the Nicole Kidman family, the father is now dead. And so now from a four-person system, you now have a three-person system. And in the absence of the father, there's a, a void of the role that he played in that system. And there was a certain amount of chaos happening because of that. Uh, Nicole Kidman's character was having a little bit hard time to, you know, controlling the kids. The kids were um, out of sorts. Of course, the three-person system is going through a tremendous amount of trauma and shock and grief around the loss of of the dad, but but then the Meryl Streep character shows up, and she kind of starts to fill the role that the husband f- uh, filled by being stern, by being more attentive, more hands on with the kids in terms of discipline, and the system stabilized and and instantly the other three people appreciated the Meryl Streep character coming back in. Uh, Nicole Kidman's character in the beginning of season two actually really appreciated Meryl Streep as. Uh, helping out and being and being the stern one, and this allows the Nicole Kidman character to remain in her comfort zone, to remain in her uh, the role in a system that she's used to, which is to be not the stern one. And then you know problems you know started after that. But the other role that the grandmother uh, filled in this four person system was that she was the truth sayer. She was the truth seeker. She was the emotional person because the Nicole Kidman tended to, to suppress. And so when you have that, you need someone to lead the charge with emotions. The, the more suppressed the other people are, the more pressure is put by the system on this individual to be more expressive. If you ever find yourself in a social system, a family system, and you feel like you're acting in ways that don't make a lot of sense to you, one way is to look at, well, how is the system organized and what elements of the system are pressuring you to actually be a role for them? You know, what, what benefit to the system uh, is you being that way? That's always a good question to ask because we tend to think of ourselves as individuals, like we have our own personalities, but we do to a certain extent, but we're 90% affected by the system around us. And um, the the demands put on us, and the other roles that people take, and the the so called goals of the system. Anyway, listen to my deep dive on for, for for more information on that. Another aspect of psychology that I think they depicted a little bit, and this seemed to be a little bit of an overt thing that the writers were trying, or the writer was trying to say, was that the two boys in this in the Celeste Nicole Kidman character family, the two twins, they observed the father being aggressive and violent. And the two boys, after the father's gone, they started being violent and aggressive too. And this is a very common thing. When you as a child witness abuse, there's a lot, again, there's a lot of 
difficulty you're going through as a person. And uh, one choice that you have is to say, well, it must, there must be a reason for that. Otherwise, if there's no reason for that, then I have to look at my father and think he's crazy or there's something wrong with him or he's, uh, you know, he's, he's an unreasonable, scary, erratic person that doesn't make any sense. That's a very scary real realization to make, which is actually more true than any other explanation. The other explanation is, well, he, he must have a reason and it must be okay to do that when you're upset. And that's actually, even though that's not a good lesson to learn, it actually feels better. It's more secure than believing otherwise. Cause you'd be like, well, my dad's doing what you're supposed to do. And so I live in a sane, structured, safe world because of that. And so you start telling yourself, well, when I, when someone's angry and you, you know, someone is bothering you, then, you know, you can stab them with a fork. And that's what happens in season two. Another element of psychology here is the PTSD that the Shailene character exhibited when she was dating and there was some physical contact with her, um, her date, her, her trauma was triggered. Her trauma of the rape that she went through was triggered and she had a very quintessential, uh, well-depicted reaction, if I remember right, that exhibited, you know, fear and get off me and very, very common for people. This It's the same as if you got in a really bad car accident and you're terrified about getting in a car again, or you went to war in Afghanistan and you witnessed someone being shot and there was a lot of gunshots going off and helicopters. And then it's really hard for you to watch a movie that involves helicopters and Gunshots. It's the same thing. Our body encodes information around the trauma as it's happening and says, all of this is bad. Everything that's happening right here needs to be avoided. And our brain doesn't necessarily differentiate between details of the moment that are uh, salient to the, uh, to the danger and things that are. Our brain just says, all of everything that just happened right there needs to be avoided. So even though she's with a new fella, that isn't the guy who uh, raped her earlier. And in her mind, she's like, this guy's nice. He's not aggressive with me. But the fact that sexual contact and, you know, maybe someone breathing on you or uh, covering your body, all those things were associated with the rape and therefore triggered the trauma, even though it, it wasn't the trauma happening over again. Uh, that's a key understanding of how the memory of trauma works. So we also saw how the Shailene character recovered from the sexual trauma and how she took it very slow and how she had a good partner that um, was um, willing to take it slow with her and what provided a lot of safety and how she recovered. So that was nice to see. It's also, I I just want to say that uh, some, well, no, I'll I'll get to that later. I'll move this somewhere else. Um. The other thing I want to say is that the infidelity with the Reese Witherspoon, Adam Scott uh, relationship was, I thought, beautifully written, directed, and acted. I mean, just, it gives me chills. I treat infidelity with a lot of couples, and it's, it's something that is in a lot of movies, infidelity, cheating, but um, not a lot on recovery. In fact, I can't think of any depiction 
of infidelity recovery in movies or TV. I'm sure it's out there, but, but I could rattle off, you know, hundreds of, of just <clears throat> pure infidelity. I mean, half of Woody Allen movies are about, about that. So in season two, we see the Reese Witherspoon, Adam Scott character, uh, go through the steps of shock and guilt and therapy, which was terrible, by the way, that therapist was an awful, awful couples therapist. Listen to that episode in which I do a discussion of that. But the way in which the two of them navigated the recovery and they continued to have a conversation and how messy it gets and how in the end they both realized that their marriage before wasn't really the way that they wanted it to be and it wasn't authentic and it wasn't real. And when they got married, they weren't really committing to each other. And now in light of the infidelity, they're like, I, I've been living a lie and I don't want to live that anymore. And I I want to love and I want this and I'm going to, I'm going to do it. I'm going to, I'm going to make this relationship happen. I'm not going to, I'm not going to distract myself with parties and kids. I, I really want to see this human being and really be with them. And you could really see that transition or, I mean, they had to do it real quick because it wasn't a focus of the season, but I just thought it was amazing and very touching in the end between the two characters. I, th- I thought that was just perfectly acted and directed and, and written. The last thing I'll say about psychology in relation to big little lies is I always like to think about why are we watching this show? Why do we like this show so much? What does it say about us that we like this show? And what kind of reactions were we having? Cause you know, you, you identify with the characters and you start hoping for certain things. And I want you to think about the question, were you rooting for these five women to get away with it? Because if you are, you know, that says something right now, one could say the murder was justified. Perry was uh, truly a monster. But a lot of people would say, no, I mean, he deserves to be prosecuted. He deserves to be outed and maybe shamed, but he doesn't deserve to be m- murdered uh, and pushed down the stairs. So um, it is. So I want you to think about whether or not you were uh, rooting for the five of them to, to get away with it. Um, I know it was really hard to watch the Perry husband guy doing everything that he was doing to Nicole Kidman's character. That was inexcusable. There's, there's just no excuse for that. He's, he was, he was, he made a lot of purposeful choices to harm another human being when he could have easily thought, well, maybe I need to work on this. Um, well, I guess another interesting part of it, uh, of, of, both season one and two was the depiction of domestic violence. It was a little sensational at times with the sexual angle, but a lot of the, the intimate partner violence was, was pretty accurate. One accuracy that again, isn't depicted a lot is that the husband Perry had a lot of good qualities and some, and sometimes he was a, he was a loving, caring, jovial husband and, a loving, caring, jovial father. And you actually see that in season two where the Nicole Kidman character, you see her 
particularly at the end, missing Perry on some level and appreciating the good the good times. And that's an important thing for everyone to know that if if you've been in a intimate partner violence relationship before, domestic DV relationship before, then you know this. But for a lot of people, they're often like, why do you stay in a relationship? Well, one of the reasons why people often stay is that these individuals can be really quite lovely, just like anybody else can. It's not like if you engage in domestic violence, you're some kind of all-the-time monster. You're probably only a monster 0.1% of the time. The rest of the time, you're totally normal. Uh, Maybe not. Sometimes people make you walk on eggshells all the time. But I thought that was another good, accurate depiction. I just wish the therapy in the show was better. I really feel like it could have been so much better and not have ruined the plot. But anyway. Okay, so I thought I would just close with what I just general thoughts of things I liked and disliked about season two. First off, as I think I've talked about already, beautifully shot. Just amazing. The setting of, you know, I have cousins in Monterey. It really just makes me want to go there. Um, I've actually wanted to go there for a long time. I've heard that it's pretty amazing. And I've been to places nearby there, but never there. The the framing of the shots was amazing. The sound design, the editing, the lighting was just amazing. I mean, I, I'm a lot of these shows are starting to have that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if there's just more money or better technology or something to produce just these visually stunning things. And obviously it takes an artist, like the way that they edit in the waves, how they'll have a little interlude and they'll just have waves. It reminds me of Japanese anime, how they'll do that. And I don't know. I just thought it's just a beautifully shot show. Also superb acting. I think Meryl Streep, you know, we cannot say enough about how awesome Meryl Streep is. We, there's not a lot of actors I could say this about. Like Robert De Niro is considered one of the best actors. I haven't seen him acting well in a long time. Uh, other people like Al Pacino, I don't know. It's like they, they start ramping up their shticks and it just gets absurd, you know. Christopher Walken... He's that kind of thing. Like it becomes kind of a punchline to act like the way that you're supposed to be acting. Whereas Meryl Streep, although Meryl Streep does have one thing that bothers me that she does in almost every, every movie I've ever seen, if not everything I've ever seen her in adaptation. I love, it's one of my favorite movies. She does this thing where she, she does a double take. So whenever she has a line and she's, she, she's really good with her eye line. She's really good with like the way she will look at, uh, she knows that, what she's paying attention to is a big part of what the acting job is. But she does this thing where she does this double take. And if you ever watch Meryl Streep again, just watch it. She does it almost constantly. She never just turns her head. It's always like, she always does this thing. And I think what she is depicting is the, the sometimes natural thing that you do where you look at someone and you say something, you turn away and then, you kind of think, no, I want to turn back. I, I can't really describe it, but she depicts that pretty well, but I, I feel like she overdoes it. But anyway, she did amazing. <laughs> That's a very small nitpick. She is so believable as this character. And it's like Meryl Streep. I'm looking at Meryl Streep. How can I not 
think that's Meryl Streep. That's Meryl Streep. But yet she just slips right into those characters and she's just so great. Uh, Reese Witherspoon, I think, does a really amazing job. Uh, Nicole Kidman, I think, does a great job. Laura Dern uh, does a great job. Zoe Kravitz, her character, I don't think, is really written for a strong performance. So I haven't seen other things that she's done. I'm I'm guessing she's a superb actress, but the the um, the the part just I don't think really lent itself the way that the Meryl Streep character did or the Reese Witherspoon character. Adam Scott does a great job as well. Adam Scott, his character just I don't know. And I even thought that the the Nathan guy I thought he did great, but he 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 similarly wasn't a very rich character. The Shailene character, very well done. Uh, there's scenes between her. I'm not quite sure, but I think some of the scenes of Big Little Lies were improvised because either that or the writing and directing and acting is so good that it, it just, there were some scenes where it just seemed so real. There were scenes between Shailene and her son that I thought could not possibly have written because how would you be able to know or exhibit such natural uh, behavior? And so, I don't know, I thought... I thought that was pretty impressive. Another thing I liked about season two was it was nice to see that um, the uh, Nicole Kidman character and the Shailene character were both victimized by Perry and those two women uh, bonded instead of fighting. In another show, another writer would say, oh, well, we got to have the Shailene character and the Nicole Kidman character fighting because, you know, it just makes for better drama. And, when they first started getting into it, I thought, oh boy, they're going to go down that typical soap opera shtick to have them fight and da da da. But they didn't. They pretty quickly became friends and were supportive of each other, which uh, is, I, I imagine, accurate a lot of the time. Probably not as accurate as it you know, needs to be. But um, anyway. I also thought the dialogue was pretty good. Obviously, this show is just a, a, a series of dialogue between people, and so um, the dialogue was okay. Some of it was a little little funny, but most of it was pretty good. I also liked that the men were not demonized. Now, in the all the you know the library and the catalog of movies and TV shows, most of it is oriented towards men, and so when you have shows like this that are oriented towards women, it's like wow, it's kind of it's nice to see right in the same way that it's nice to see it when there's something oriented toward asian americans or african americans or hispanic americans or um people with disabilities or you know it's just there's certain people that are completely left out of stories and so but uh and in all of the uh movies on men that are men focused a lot of them depict women in very either one-dimensional ways or objectifying ways. And so the movies that are focused towards men are definitely often guilty of alienating women and not really understanding women. And so when uh, there's a female-oriented movie, it, they often suffer from the same tropes where they'll ha- well, either have men who are one-dimensional men who are demonized, made to, you know, men are evil, or men who are objectified in some way. And so this show, being a female-oriented show, uh, still had what I believe to be three-dimensional male characters that were not demonized at all. I mean, 
there's there's really no demonization of the man, maybe aside from the principle or something. But so I don't know. I like that too, because really, when we're making stories, we should try to include everyone and not demonize anybody. Because why? Another thing that I thought was kind of fun about season two was how the theme was consequences. And this season two was all about the consequences, right? Laura Dern's business and her husband, that coming to fruition and the lie itself and the consequences of it. And it, it's hard to make an entertaining TV show that's about the consequences of bad behavior. And I feel like they did that. Uh, the infidelity, the consequences of infidelity. I really liked the Zoe Kravitz confession scene to her mother in the hospital. It was just an amazingly written, directed, and acted scene. Um, so I take back what I said about Zoe Kravitz and not having enough to act. But that scene definitely provided a lot to act and very believable. The last thing I'll say that I really liked about the show is that it depicts family life in a more real way than other shows will. There's there's one negative thing about it that I'll say is that the kids were sometimes written in a way that made them seem like little wise Buddhas. Some of the things that the kids were saying were just like, okay, the you know, seven-year-olds aren't that wise. If you hang out with seven-year-olds, you realize like, they're beautiful, wonderful people, but not everything that comes out of their mouth is something that's wise. And in Big Little Lies, the kids are often saying these incredibly wise, poignant things. And I find that to be uh, annoying. Um, it's like the writers want to use the kids. The writer wants to use a kid, the kids as some kind of truth sayer or something. And it's just like, you know, but aside from that nitpick, I will say that, I loved how – so in a lot of movies about f- real people and families, the kids are often uh, brought in as these props where the kids come into the scene. There's a scene with the kids, and then this, then the kids are gone. You won't see them for episodes. You know, you'll just be, oh, like you'll, you'll see a show by episode five. You're like, oh, yeah, that's right. These people have kids. In Big Little Lies, it's – a the kids are there. The kids are in the scenes. There's, there's dialogue with the kids. There's talk about the parents are talking about the kids. There's scenes, you know, sleeping with the kids and the kids are a part of the story. And I thought that was really uh, good writing because it, it could easily become not interesting, right? Cause the story isn't focused on the kids dramas. It's on the parents. And yet it, it was interwoven in a way that I just thought was was really great. And the kids were a part of the story too, which isn't usually the case. Also, lots of scenes at the school, dropping the, you know, just very common middle-class American life of dropping the kids off at school, going to assemblies, PTA meetings, conversations with the principal, conversations with the other parents. You, they depict that again, they, uh, Really deftly, I thought, giving it a a certain reality to it that other shows don't usually typically do. All right. Here's some things I didn't like. Sometimes it was a bit cheesy. There was some conflict that was ramped up quite a bit. Like the principal seemed like an absurd character. I, I know they were trying to work that character into be like a comic relief character or something, but 
the show tonally doesn't come across as an absurd show in that way. And so I don't know. Whenever the principal was on screen, I was always like, ugh, you know, I, I just didn't like that that character and the way that they wrote that character. Some of Laura Dern's scenes were a little over the top, I thought. Um, I know some people might dig that sort of thing, but I was kind of like, eh, okay. Um, another thing that, that I'll say, and I'm sure I'll annoy some people with this, is that there are very few Asians in this show. Now, I'm not one of those people that's like, you got to have a quota of Asian people as an Asian American myself, that, you know, you got to have a quota of Asian people in every, I'm not like that, but... What I'm saying is, and I've said this before, is that when you're an Asian American and you know that in the United States, something like, what, 5%, let me actually look up the exact number. So it's about 6%. About 6% of Americans who are American citizens are Asian Americans, like me. And so that's a little bit over 1 in 20, which is a lot of people, right? And Yet, one in 20 actors are not Asian. Now, again, I'm not talking about quotas. I'm not saying you need to have that. But when it's one in a thousand of shows have a good Asian-American part, when you, you, know, you tally up all the Hollywood parts, and then you have some Asians who are replaced with Asians, with white people, it, it just becomes this pattern in a society where you're just like, why? Why? Is there something wrong with us? <laughs> um, you can't say that there aren't Asian actors. You can't say that there aren't Asian comedians because there are. I could list off many. But so in this show, uh, now, if this show was taking place in Kansas, then I might forgive them because there's not a lot of Asian Americans in Kansas. There are Asian Americans in Kansas, but n- not a lot. This is in California. <laughs> okay. <laughs> which arguably has the most Asian-American population in the world, right? So I looked up the demographics of Monterey, and it's, it's 7% Asian. It is two-thirds white. It's 18% Latino, 7% Asian, 5% mixed, and 4% black. So in this show, now I'm not saying of the five women, one of them had to be Asian, but at least maybe the principal would be Asian or one of the spouses would be Asian or the judge would be Asian or, you know, when you have 7% of a population in a town being Asian American, and I don't think there was a single Asian American, maybe there was an Asian American, uh, one of the other parents was Asian, but very small part. Again, I'm not going to blame Big Little Lies because I've, I'm just, this is just an indictment on Hollywood in general, but I, my Asian American cousins live in Monterey. And so when I think of Monterey, I think of Asian Americans. I think of my cousins and my aunts and uncles. I, t- it was just odd for me to watch this show, and it was just all, almost all white people. And again, Monterey is two-thirds white. The rest of them are not white. So it's just – now, again, there's was supposed to be the rich side of town, so uh, maybe you know there's more white people out there. I could see that, but – Again, not an indictment on Big Little Eyes, but just an indictment on yet another of the tens of thousands of shows that just seem to um, ignore that. And I guess all I'm saying is that for casting directors and people out there, and uh, is that 
when you're casting a show, you're trying to do, depict the the naturalness of the environment, right? Like if you were to shoot a movie in Chinatown, New York, you're going to fill the extra pool when you have a bunch of extras walking on the street with Asian with Asian Americans, right? And you're not going to fill them with a bunch of white people in Chinatown. Uh, well, when you have a show in Monterey, you're going to think, okay, well, here's the mix. Two-thirds white people. You got a lot of Latino people. You got a good amount of Asians and mixed people and black people. So let's think about that as we try to construct the reality of Monterey. Anyway. Um, Another nitpick that I'll say is I'm getting a little tired of watching shows and movies about super rich people. I know they're supposed to be interesting, but I don't know. They're just not to me. The element of being super rich and having super nice houses, it it's it's just not interesting to me. I grew up in the 80s when, you know, lifestyles of the rich and famous and Donald Trump was everyone was worship imagine that everyone was worshiping Donald Trump in the 80s. Um it's it's just a little I don't know, it's just kind of gross to me. Uh like the Shailene character I liked because she had this regular apartment and lived like a normal person. Anyway, um now again i just want to say i really liked uh big little lies i i hope there's a season three so who knows but just nitpicking some more i am getting really really tired and this isn't an indictment on big little Lies. it gets it's on hollywood in general is this trend of using super slow covers of songs so there's a super slow neil young cover and it there's a super slow Nirvana cover. There's a super slow Kate Bush cover. There's a sl- super slow and downbeat Credence cover. Now, it's Willie Nelson covering Credence, but still. Um, there's a bad version of Tears for Fears, like a very upbeat version of the of the Tears for Fears song. Um, now, some of the music is great. Like, they have the Spinners. They had uh, Sufjan Stevens. They, they had a lot of great music. The music was actually pretty good. But why would you uh, – there's this trend when you're watching trailers, especially if it's like a, you know, a creepy trailer of some kind. They always want to throw in some cover so you, you recognize the tune a little bit. You recognize the lyrics, but it's in this really slow and, you know, drawn out. Blah, yeah, and it's so it, – it now – with my wife, I will off, I'll turn to her and going, and I'll just look at her. I go, super slow, super slow cover, and she's annoyed with me. She's just like, okay, enough of you pointing that out. She doesn't care. So most people, I'm guessing, don't care. But as a musician myself, I I'm very attuned to music, and so when I hear it happening over, and I hear a trend, it just starts to grate on me. Like the next time, well, the next hundred times I hear a super slow cover in a trailer or a TV show or something. Um, and my wife is sitting next to me. She's, I'm going to say something to her, and she's, she's going to get annoyed. So Hollywood, if you want to save my marriage, stop doing that. Um, the other little just nitpick that I had about the show was that the when they were showing the videotape of last season when they were interviewing the five women in the police station, as the five women are lying and, you know, they have their mascara is running and they're giving these interviews – that they have a the camera that the police so presumably this is a camera shot that the police are taking because you're we're watching it on a screen 
in the show. And the, uh, the, it's a shaky cam that's close up. So, so I'm going to, I'm to believe that behind a one way mirror, instead of just putting a camera on a tripod, you have a police officer holding a camera, zooming in a tight zoom and like not holding it quite right. (laughs) Like, I, I don't, I don't know if people understand what I'm saying. Um, Thank you. And for those who don't, um, I don't blame you. The last thing I'll talk about, which I do actually find to be a problem. This isn't a nitpick. This is a big problem. The custody battle between Meryl Streep and Nicole Kidman was ridiculous. I've, in my practice, 20 plus years, I've treated adults. uh, Mostly I've treated couples. But for the first 10 or 15 years of my career, I treated a lot of families. And a good number of them were, uh, or a small minority of them were in custody battles of, or some kind of issue around where the kids should be living and that kind of thing. And with some of them, I would end up in court. And some of them, I was actually called in specifically for that. They would hire me to go to the home and try to fix a family. So I, I have an observational knowledge of how the system works in the United States regarding custody and uh, taking away custody. And the custody battle in this thing was, it was just ridiculous. So basically what happens is you have Meryl Streep, the grandmother gets a lawyer and files a petition to take away custody, to transfer custody from the biological mother to her, to the grandmother. And they talk about how there's going to be an assessment. Uh, someone's going to assess the uh, the fitness of the mother, which they didn't depict at all, by the way. And then, boom, they're in court. And so this is – now, it's possible that this could happen. It's, it's not like it's impossible that this could happen, but it was. it's so unlikely. So typically what happens is – and because these are real cases. You'll have a – single parent say who is struggling with something drug addiction depression health issues bad parenting you know all the above something and you have a concerned uh, family member or a like a grandparent who is saying you know my grandkids are being mistreated you know i want to get i want to get my hands on my grandkids so there's a procedure that you can go through but typically very very typically what happens is the the state the government is extremely averse to taking away cut taking away children from their own parents it's one of it's there's a very high bar to take children away from parents it there in society there's this notion that like cps you know child protective services just comes in and just takes away your kids and of course that happens on occasion but 99.999% of the time one the government is on the parent's side and is there to help. Two, they don't have the money to uh, spend on these cases. If anything, the government, because they're underfunded, doesn't do enough to protect kids. But anyway, so typically 99.9% of the time, what's going to happen is that, so the grandmother makes this allegation. Well, DSHS, you know, the government, social workers and child protective services, they have to be informed. And so, and they have a whole system that they will, um, now in the show, they said she never called child protective services, but 
someone anyway the point is is that uh the judge could have actually uh mandated that said look before you guys come to court and hash this out i need you guys to work with child protective services i need you to work with a therapist i need you to work with an assessor and you guys figured out judges don't typically like to make that choice because how are they supposed to know based on a couple days of trial uh and because the judge never leaves the the judge, you know, never leaves the courthouse, whereas therapists and assessors can go to the house, talk to the kids, watch the mother interact with the kids. So the judge depends on all these people to understand what's happening. Anyway, so what typically happens is a social worker gets involved and the social worker goes out and does a little assessment. And then they call a therapist like me to go to the home and help the mother parent better. So I would help the mother deal with her distress. I would help her with her grief. I would help the kids with the grief. I would maybe set her up with some services around respite care so that she can take a break because she's a single mom. Maybe I would get other people involved, like the grandma, to support the family. Maybe I would um, set her up with individual therapy, the mom, uh, family therapy, kid therapy, um, help the mother with her drug abuse situation. You know, help her problem solve her ambient taking and that kind of stuff. Um, you know, just do all the things that need to be done in order to help this family. And then at at the end of that, they would ask me, is the mother participating meaningfully? And I would say, yes, she is. And then the judge would be like, fine, keep doing it. Sounds like things are going well. We don't need to touch this situation. Because again, the judge doesn't want to get involved really. So that is the norm what they showed in the in the TV show was it was like the grandma just had on a whim had some very weak allegations. I mean, extremely weak. The fact that the the mother is uh, she took Ambien and and got in a car accident is you know that happens. The kids were in the car. Uh, two uh, that she has sex sometimes with men. Uh, you know, that's so there's nothing, it's not illegal. And she's, she's not uh, the one time that a guy came over to the house, like it was pretty brief. And the thing is, is like some of this stuff might shock you. You might be like, Whoa, you know, that's pretty bad parenting. I'm here to tell you I'm, I've been ground zero on some of the worst parenting uh, that you could ever imagine. And then some, and the government still does not like taking kids away from their parents. Because, again, there's a high bar to taking kids away. Um, so, anyway. Um, having said all that, I have seen some ridiculous things happen in family court. So, it's not like it's completely out of the ordinary. Um, there are some things that I've, as a, you know, I'll be an expert witness or I'll be a support person in the courtroom. And I'll just be witnessing a judge do stuff. And I've just been like wow, this judge has no idea what they're doing. Um, that was one thing about all that work. Probably for a good 10 years, I was in court like once every couple of weeks. And I lost so much respect for judges in general and the, and the justice system. I mean, I'm not one of those people that's just like, you know, anarchy. Uh, we have to have a system. We have to. But the thing I realized was that judges are humans. They're, they're, it's just a person. <laughs> and they they go home and they watch Jeopardy 
and they have all the same confusions and biases. And, uh, but the difference is they don't really have a lot of checks and balances on their behavior. And there's a lot of pressure. They have to, they have to produce, they have to make a decision. And actually a friend of mine is a very high end judge and they, I talk with them a lot about what it's like and it's a lot of pressure. We put a lot of pressure because really what should be happening in my view is that it shouldn't just be one judge, particularly when the judge is the one making the decision. There should be like a team of people who confer and because there's so, you know, two heads, three heads, four heads are so much better than one. I just take myself, for example, whenever I'm thinking about something, I almost always benefit when I bounce it off other people and they start saying, well, you know, how about this? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess that makes sense. So why do we put one judge? Now, higher up a certain courts, then you start getting, you know, more justices who will prevail over things. Um, Prevail? Preside? (laughs) Anyway, end of the episode. Thanks for joining me out there. What do you think of Big Little Lies? Uh, You can contact me by going to the website that's the best place go to psychologyseattle.com go to the contact us page below there should be a clickable url where you can uh, contact me that's my favorite place to interact with people because it asks all the questions like is it okay to read it on the podcast what do you want me to call you do you want to be anonymous are you a patron all that kind of stuff go to the website contact me through that and i'd love to hear your opinion about big little lies am i dumb for harping on uh, the cover songs? Am I reverse racist for wanting to insert Asians into this show? Let me know. And that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining me out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it. You really, really do.